love my children, and I would do anything for them if I was convinced it was in their best interest. Ironically, I often upset my children by not letting them do or have what they want, not because I'm cruel, but because I know better than they do what is in their best interest. But that crying and pleading does break my heart in such moments. I genuinely want to see them happy. I don't like to upset them, but I have a responsibility for their well-being that goes beyond their immediate feelings. When I think about my children, I realize that my bond to them is an evolutionarily devised scheme to compel my behavior to the advantage of my genes. Even knowing the neurochemical influences that underlie my values here, I am completely at their mercy. I really do love those damn kids. There was an episode of The Mandalorian recently in which Mando brings baby Yoda to a Jedi, and she refuses to take the little one on for training on the grounds that he is too attached to The Mandalorian. This attachment makes him susceptible to the dark side. I thought about this, and it really is true. How many people would I be willing to sacrifice to save my own children? If the number is a lot, and I suppose it undeniably is, I have to wonder how I could possibly justify that. In objective moral terms, my children are no more important or sacred than anybody else's children. If you have kids, what evil could you be compelled to do to save their lives? For that matter, I should be willing to throw my life away to save two strangers. But I value my life more than a stranger's, and I value my kids more than I value yours. These values are obviously inherited. My genes are those that have survived a million generations. They didn't do that by altruistic self-sacrifice. All the altruistic genes were outcompeted long before you and I appeared on the scene. Imagine that. In an early episode, the third episode of this podcast, I made an argument which I think establishes that human consciousness must be functional. I argued that the contents of consciousness are not arbitrary, that the things which are good for my organism, that is, good for Jesse, are also good for me, that is, they feel good to me, the conscious mind. Likewise, the things that are bad for Jesse are accompanied by unpleasant qualia for me. Of course, I mean this in general terms. I would probably very much like cocaine and heroin, even though they might be very bad for my long-term wellness. But that is not an effective counter-argument. Each of these drugs works by directly stimulating the brain systems which are responsible for positive affect, for positive feeling. In the case of cocaine, a dopaminergic seeking system. In the case of heroin, an opiate-driven pleasure system. A researcher could also stimulate those target areas of my brain with an electrical probe and result in positive affect too. The brain has not evolved for such contingencies. The brain evolved to dole out these chemical signals under the appropriate circumstances, and if I'm not much mistaken, to motivate and reward conscious beings like me. The whole idea of positive and negative feelings presupposes a function for conscious experiences in the behavioral outcomes of organisms equipped with such systems. It is reasonable to suppose that emotional contents, those that motivate and reward, evolved prior to the more descriptive perceptual contents of consciousness. If an organism only has one or the other, the emotions are probably a lot more critical. This accords with the deeper, primitive cortical and subcortical systems which developed first in brain evolution. The limbic system, for example, is much older than the outer structures of the cerebral cortex. Lately, I've been reading and thinking about affect, which is to say, emotions. As a conscious being, there is nothing more compelling to me than certain states of affect. I cannot escape that fact by noting my great interest in rationality and ideas. My very interest is an emotional state. I get excited by reading about and discussing good ideas, and a few bad ones. The excitement, probably driven by dopamine, is beyond my control. 
If I didn't have such brain systems working, I wouldn't give a damn about interesting ideas, rational or otherwise. If I became severely depressed and took on a state of anhedonia, nothing would feel good to me. Nothing could capture my interest or compel me to inspiration. If such a condition persisted with no reasonable hope of it going away, I would have no reason for being, no reason to go on living. So affective systems are critical to understanding what we care about. And yet, I observe that these systems are rarely discussed in the context of consciousness and its neuroscientific theories. The discussion is usually limited to the domain of perception, and I'm forced to wonder whether this might have led us astray in the assignment of the putative neural correlates of consciousness. The question must be at least asked, do the subcortical brain structures responsible for affect contribute directly to conscious experience? If so, then we have been too hasty in drawing a border around the thalamus and the cortex. We have seen that electrical stimulation of regions of the cerebral cortex often produce stereotyped qualia. Stimulation of the occipital lobe might produce visual phosphenes, for example. Stimulation of the somatosensory cortex will produce a sensation somewhere on the body. In the same way, stimulation of subcortical nuclei produce strong feelings. Stimulation of the periaqueductal gray, PAG, of the midbrain can produce intense anger, rage. Stimulation of the lateral hypothalamus produces a sense of curiosity and engagement. Doesn't it follow that the emotional contents of consciousness arise from those subcortical networks? Not necessarily. But before I muster an argument that we should not expect subcortical structure, structures to directly produce conscious contents, let us first give the devil his fair due and consider the idea that they might. In today's case, the devil comes in the personage of Jacques Panksepp. I've been studying his book, Affective Neuroscience, which was published in 1998. I must admit that I was undereducated in graduate school on the emotional systems, and I found the book quite illuminating. As much as it would be of utility to bring a variety of source materials to the discussion, I've decided for the purpose of this episode to focus entirely on Panksepp's book. There is plenty of material in there to digest. To begin, I will read from a section early in the book on the topic of the brain's organization. Panksepp writes, quote, The organizational principle that has been most commonly used to summarize the neural infrastructure of emotional processes has been Paul McLean's concept of the triune brain. According to the classic version of this view, which offers a conceptual cartoon of the major layers of neural development, the functional landscape of the brain is organized in three strata of evolutionary progression. The deepest and most ancient layer is the reptilian brain, also known as the basal ganglia, or the extrapyramidal motor system. Here, many of our basic motor plans, especially axial or whole body movements, including primitive behavioral responses related to fear, anger, and sexuality, are elaborated by specific neural circuits. The next layer, known as the limbic system or visceral brain, contains newer programs related to the various social emotions, including maternal acceptance and care social bonding, separation distress, and rough-and-tumble play. Finally, surrounding these ancient subcortical regions, which are quite similarly organized in all mammals, we have the neomammalian brain, or neocortex, which is rudimentary in other vertebrates, and ex exhibits the greatest diversification among mammalian species. The neocortex can come to be influenced by emotions, and influences them, through various appraisal processes, but it is not a fundamental neural substrate for the generation of affective experience. Although the cortex can be powerfully moved by emotions, and the human cortex can rationally attempt to understand and influence them, it apparently cannot generate emotionality. 
without the ancient subcortical functions of the brain." Unquote. I should note straight away that the concept of the triune brain is a major simplification. Furthermore, the limbic and cingulate cortices and other deep structures of the cerebral hemispheres should not really necessarily be labeled as subcortical. They are older and deeper situated anatomically than neocortex, but not all of the cerebral cortex is neocortex. We have consistently assumed that thalamus, which is highly and reciprocally integrated with the cortex, to be a necessary component of the substrate of consciousness. The thalamus is anatomically linked with the cortex, and together these two structures can be referred to as the thalamocortical system. I have argued, citing leading thinkers in the field, including Christoph Koch, Giulio Tononi, and many others, that the neural substrate of consciousness is contained within the thalamocortical system. Jock Panksepp, by contrast, argues that the basis of consciousness has a subcortical substrate, and he does provide evidence to draw such a conclusion. The book covers many emotional systems with a large focus on four major ones. Panksepp writes, quote, At least four primal emotional circuits mature soon after birth, as indexed by the ability of localized brain stimulation to evoke coherent emotional displays in experimental animals, and these systems appear to be remarkably similarly organized in humans. The four most well-studied systems are one, an appetitive motivation-seeking system, which helps elaborate energetic search and goal-directed behaviors on behalf of any of a variety of distinct goal objects. Two, a rage system, which is especially easily aroused by thwarting and frustrations. Three, a fear system, which is designed to minimize the probability of bodily destruction. And four, a separation distress panic system, which is especially important in the elaboration of social-emotional processes related to attachment." Unquote. He goes on to mention further mammalian emotional systems such as those mediating lust, maternal care, and roughhousing play. Each of these individual systems has an anatomical substrate which begins subcortically and influences cortical function. These systems also have their own neurochemical milieus, for example, the seeking system principally involves dopamine signaling. In the final chapter of Affective Neuroscience, Panksepp provides his rationale for the claim that consciousness emerges from a subcortical substrate. He writes, quote, A subcortical location for the essential mechanisms of consciousness can be derived from the many fascinating studies of split-brain individuals in whom the corpus callosum has been severed, eliminating the main communication channels between the two cerebral hemispheres. Although such data are more commonly used to argue that human conscious awareness is cortically elaborated, the continued unity of primary process consciousness and a primal form of behavioral intentionality following the splitting of the human brain are also striking. Although each hemisphere can have independent realms of perceptual awareness, cogitate independently, and have distinct emotional communication styles, careful behavioral observation of split-brain individuals yields an additional overriding conclusion. Despite massive hemispheric disconnection, the deep and essential coherence of each person's personality and his or her sense of unity appears to remain intact. Most forms of intentionality and deep emotional feelings are not split in any obvious way by a parting of the hemispheres. Only the cognitive interpretations of specific events are affected. For instance, when one side of the brain is exposed to a sexually arousing visual stimulus, the other side feels the arousal but is not able to interpret the precipitating event correctly and often dissembles and rationalizes. The unity of an underlying form of consciousness in split-brain individuals, perhaps their fundamental sense of self, is affirmed by the fact 
that the disconnected hemispheres can no more easily execute two cognitive tasks simultaneously than can the brains of normal individuals. The inability to distribute attention simultaneously to two tasks is a characteristic feature of a unified consciousness in neurologically intact individuals. In split-brain people, a central workshop of consciousness which simultaneously influences both hemispheres continues to limit distribution of attentional resources." Unquote. I'm not sure that the latter claim is as clear-cut as he is saying here. According to Michael Gazaniga, who conducted a lot of these experiments, there is some division of attentional capacity. Panksepp goes on, quote, It is also noteworthy that in day-to-day -day activities, the longitudinally severed hemispheres of split-brain people rarely meddle with each other's affairs. For instance, when a split-brain individual dives into a swimming pool, there are no behavioral signs, such as one side of the body flailing, to suggest that half of the brain has been taken by surprise. Thus, the most impressive message is that despite a massive division of the major toolboxes of human consciousness, split-brain individuals still operate as coherent wholes in the affective, intentional, and motor conduct of their daily lives. Thus, the foundations for our subjectively experienced core of being must lie deeper within the brain than the cerebral hemispheres. Indeed, there are many subcortical channels for interhemispheric communication of information that could sustain coherence between the two hemispheres." Unquote. I think this argument is worth considering. I agree that one of the most remarkable things about the split-brain patients that have been studied is how subtle their behavioral deficits are. Next, Panksepp brings up decortication, the removal of a large component of the neocortex from young animals. He writes, quote, A similar conclusion is evident from the study of animals that have been decorticated early in life. They sustain a remarkably strong level of behavioral coherence and spontaneity. Indeed, as mentioned in the previous chapter, college students asked to observe two animals, one normal and one decorticate, typically mistake one for the other. This arises from the fact that decorticates are generally more active, while the normal animals appear more timid. Students tend to believe that the energized affective behavior is an indication of normality. The ability of such decorticate animals to compete effectively with normal animals during bouts of rough and tumble play is further testimony to the likelihood that internal self-coherence is subcortically organized." Unquote. Okay, I'll admit that I'm impressed that these animals can win dominance tests with normal rats. I'm not too surprised, though, that they are active. The basal ganglia and other lower structures are able to mediate spontaneous motor routines, and in this case, they are not being regulated by top-down inhibition from the frontal cortex. Of course, we can't say anything with certainty about what, if anything, these decorticate animals are experiencing. Moreover, the notes at the end of the book indicate that the effects in humans are much more devastating. For example, motor cortex injury can result in contralateral paralysis, while similar damage to the rat brain only has detectable effects on fine motor skills. This reminds me of the monkeys with primary visual cortex lesions. In contrast to humans with such lesions, these animals could get around and do what they do without acting at least as seen by an outside observer as if they are blind. Panksepp continues, quote, such diverse lines of evidence taken together su suggest that essential core of being is subcortical. In my estimation, it was first elaborated in brain evolution within central motor-type regions of the midbrain, in periventricular and surrounding areas of the midbrain, and diencephalon that are richly connected with higher limbic and paleocortical zones. These brain areas appear to be the most likely sources for the primal neural mechanisms that generate affective states of consciousness. It will be argued that those primordial circuits may elaborate a fundamental sense of self within the brain.
Although this is not a very skilled and intelligent self, and its pervasive influence may often seem pre-conscious, it ultimately allows animals to develop into the intentional, volitional, and cognitively selective creatures that they are. It may do this in part by providing a basic body image that can control primitive attentional and intentional focus. I will assume that such archaic brain functions provide a fundamental reference point for the development of more sophisticated levels of competence throughout the rest of the nervous system." Unquote. I think Pangsep is defining the midbrain in pretty broad terms. He includes the diencephalon, which is the thalamus and hypothalamus, and their connections with limbic and primitive cortical structures. My suspicion is that some of those structures really are integrated into a common system with regions of the cerebral cortex that are known to give rise to perceptual consciousness, especially posterior association cortices. But I hypothesize that the subcortical nuclei which are responsible for emotions are not directly giving rise to conscious emotions. Here is why. Recall that visual stimuli impinging on the retina are transduced into action potentials that project along axons in the optic nerve and land in the primary visual cortex, V1, by way of the thalamus. Experiments have demonstrated that the primary visual cortex is neither necessary nor sufficient for visual qualia. Activity in V1 projects forward to several other associated areas of cortex in the occipital lobe and elsewhere, but you don't need V1 to have visual experiences in dreams, for example. Naturally, you will be blind to stimuli coming from the retina. You will be cut off from that stream of stimulation. According to my theoretical framework and others, including IIT, the key to the substrate of consciousness is integration of causality. Outside networks which are not integrated can feed into the integrated system and influence it. This is how consciousness comes to have information from the sensory organs, the eyes and ears and receptors on the skin. All of these peripheral neural structures are feeding action potentials into the integrated system. By analogy, I hypothesize that nuclei in the brainstem and hypothalamus are feeding forward into the integrated network of the thalamocortex. They are not integrated with it. Here's an experiment that would prove my point. Let's consider the dopaminergic neurons in the midbrain. These neurons have their cell bodies in the ventral tegmental area of the midbrain. Their axons project to limbic and cortical areas. This means that the synapses they form in their target areas release dopamine, which interacts at those targets. The experiment would be to block the activity of these dopaminergic neurons in the midbrain using a local neurotoxin or optogenetic suppression. Now these neurons cannot act. Then we stimulate the axons projecting from those neurons to release dopamine at their synaptic targets. If the subject now experiences the emotional effects of this activity, then the midbrain was not directly giving rise to the affect. In other words, the midbrain is neither necessary nor sufficient to give rise to the emotion. The emotion is occurring within the integrated system. The interesting question for me is how dopaminergic activities at those target locations give rise to the seeking type experiences that it does. I'll probably explore that question in a future podcast. David Hume famously noted that we cannot coherently move from statements about what is to statements about what ought to be. Clearly, our values are instantiated in the evolution-born systems of affect. Some things feel right and others do not. The human capacity for reasoning and abstraction has allowed us to create cultural systems of law and politics, philosophies of ethics. Human consciousness comes in the form which survived natural selection. This means that we are slaves to evolved emotional systems. They make us love our children. 
They make us loyal to our friends and family. They inspire us to do great things, but they also punish us and enable us to hurt others, even compel us to do so. As long as we are the conscious beings emergent from human brains, we will be subject to human nature in all its self-serving tyranny.